I'm going to start by addressing the rather large piece of wood in the room. I'm going to ask a trick question, and I warn you it's a trick question, and no, no impolite answers this afternoon. What is the oldest object in the room? What's the oldest object in the room? I'll give you a hint. It's the oldest, the oldest thing in the room is not the pulpit. This was, this was F.J. Wilkins' pulpit. And this last week, it, uh, it came home. The brass plaque on the side here says that he used this between um, 18... 1880 and 1889. Um, But the oldest thing in the room is the story that we're going to step back into in a minute. (laughs) Trick question. Yeah, I gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. It's not the pulpit. The oldest thing in the room is the story that you and I have been swept up into. And that's why we're here. We're not we're not here for our story. Even even as, as far back stretching as it may be. By the way, if anyone climbs on this, they might wear it. So parents be warned. I, I wonder if it was designed to be able to do this, by the way. Sorry. Could I get that first slide up, please, Grace? The gospel is really, really simple. The good news about Jesus is very, very simple. And, and sometimes... We can think that knowing Jesus is about complexity and building an increasingly beautiful and elaborate collection of thoughts. But when God told his story and when he passed it on to us, when he stepped into people's lives and interacted with them, it was incredibly simple. Something that anyone anywhere could understand. And the good news that that we're just going to walk through really simply again and remind ourselves of, and give God, give God praise and worship and glory about is tremendously simple. No matter how wise we are or how simple we are, no matter how educated or uneducated, no, no matter how many years we've been involved with, with church or Christian things or not, it is simple enough that any one of us can get hold of it. The first part of our story, piece number one, is that in the beginning God made everything. And God could have made it any way that he wanted to. He could have represented himself any way that he wanted to. And in your Bible and mine, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That there was nothing else. All there was was God. And God said, Let there be light. God is light. This picture turns up throughout the Bible. Simple picture that anyone can get. No matter how long you've lived in the dark, no matter how many dark things have happened in your life, things that maybe you've got into or things that people have done to you, God is light and the light is not afraid of the dark. God is light and he creates everything. He makes space for everything else to exist. Like he literally makes space, but he makes the opportunity for something to have life other than himself. Someone said once that the first most extraordinary act of creation is that God made room for someone else. When all there was was God, 
God made room for someone else. We call it creation. We call it the cosmos. We call it the universe. Whatever we call it, it's, it's a thing that God brought into existence for a purpose. God didn't just put stars in their place because he felt like putting stars in their place. He didn't just create the planets. He didn't just create asteroid fields. He didn't just create the, the laws of physics because he felt like he, he created it with a purpose in mind. And that purpose in mind is that you and I would have a relationship with God. We would have a seat at God's table. We were created for relationship. God was never, ever a lonely old man sitting on a cloud. The scriptures tell us that there is this life between the Father and the Son and the Spirit that they are actively involved in each other, that they adore one another, they give glory to one another. And out of this divine, beautiful oneness and threeness of God, that spills out and that's the cause of creation. We were created for community. We were created to reflect God. We were created in God's image to be creative that we could bring life into existence. And when God made us to do that, God gave humanity an identity and a purpose and meaning that there was a plan in mind. He gave humanity their, their values, their sense of worth. And then the scriptures say that God breathed his spirit in, unlike any other thing in all of creation. God makes all these other things that live and move And then he puts his very breath. The old word is the ruach, literally the spirit, the breath. It's the same word. He puts his ruach into humanity. And we are intimately connected to God. We can bring life into existence. And we have a purpose. We are safe. God says to humanity, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Tend the garden. We are blessed and we are safe. And into this equation, God gives an opportunity for us to disobey God. If you can only love someone, if that's the only option that you have is to love someone, how real is that love? If someone chains you to to a wall in a house and says, don't leave the house, You don't really have another option. If there was not an opportunity for for us as human beings to turn our back on God, then how real could our love ever have been? How much could we really be made in the image of God if we were capped in that way? This is the risk God took in creating us. He made us incredibly powerful creatures. He gave us the power to reject God if we so desired. And the picture we have in the Bible is this picture of two trees. One is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in this beautiful, sacred, special place that God created. We call it Eden, where there was a garden and the picture of one tree, which is a tree of life. And as long as Adam and Eve could go and eat of this tree, they could live for eternity in God's presence. God's provision, God giving them their identity, God giving them their self-worth, God giving them their value. But this other tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was only one rule, don't eat the fruit off that tree. 
To do so is to disobey God. To do so is to try and be like God rather than being in relationship with God. And so there's this tension that exists. And we don't know for how long these original people, Adam and Eve, were in this space. We actually don't know. The earliest date we have in the Bible is when their third child was born called Seth. And it says Adam was 120 years old. They could have been in the garden for 100 years. We don't know. What we do know is that the Lord had an enemy. Throughout different parts of the Old Testament, um, including the book of Ezekiel, including the Psalms, we find these, these references to these other created beings who were called um, Evangelion or angels or Evangelizomai. They were messengers from God. They were ministering spirits that God created as go-betweens between himself and humanity. They were created to serve and look after human beings. And one of them said, you know what? I am jealous. I am more beautiful than them. I am more powerful than them. I deserve worship. And the scriptures tell the story of this angelic being wanting to elevate themselves. Uh, The language is very poetic. Um, I will ascend above the Most High. I will place my throne in the sides of the north. And Jesus himself uses these words, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And at some point, this being, this creature, takes the form of a serpent and goes to the garden and deliberately tempts humanity. It says, you don't have to eat only from the tree of life. Anyone here see the movie Inception? Okay. Some of us. This idea gets planted in people's minds. This idea gets put into the minds of Adam and Eve that God is not good. This is the temptation that comes. God is holding out on you. God can't be trusted. God knows that you can reach out and you can take whatever you want and you can be God yourself. This is the same lie that every one of us is born with rattling around inside of our heart. This has become part of the human condition. This lie, this temptation is signified as a piece of fruit. Take it, eat it, have it for yourself. God is not good. You can be like God. And scripture tells us that when they eat, something inside of them breaks Something that was supposed to continue being perfect breaks. God promised that it would. He said, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And we find later on this description that what happened is that the spirit of God would not continue living in them anymore. The Apostle Paul writes about this. He says that we are all born spiritually dead, that the Spirit of God needs to come again. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But the fallout of this is that humans are now alone. Their sense of identity is not anchored to God anymore. This is the way that we're born. You and I aren't born knowing innately who God is and what we're worth and our place in the universe. We don't. We don't have this automatic trust in God that he's going to provide for us and look after us. We have been cast out. 
the story goes on that when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, God breaks creation. The universe you and I live in is not the way God created it to be. We are living in the wreck. This is no longer a garden that is completely designed to look after us, to take care of us, to provide for us, to meet all of our needs. God says, now by the sweat of your brow, you're going to bring forth food to eat. Now there's going to be childbearing pains. Now there's going to be thorns and thistles. The world around you is going to rot and fall apart and our bodies are broken. Our bodies are broken inside of it as well. We don't get to choose which part of the brokenness of humanity affects us. We don't get to choose what part of the universe falls apart and collapses in on us. We see the whole universe right down to the smallest part is rotting away. This is not the universe God created it to be. Our default experiences of what it means to be human change. And we can easily think that it is normal and that this is the way God wanted it to be. When we read the scriptures and and God's breaking of creation, it says that he said the ground will now produce thorns and thistles. God deliberately stepped back into the universe as a separate afterwards act of creation and put things into this universe that would harm us so that we would know that we are not God, so that we would know that he is God and this universe is not our home. We experience physical death as well. Rather than us being trapped living forever in a corrupted world and a corrupted state with corrupted hearts, God brings death into existence, which is both a curse and still something that frees us. It is the ultimate proof that we are not in control. We also see that our behavior is broken. The things we want to do, we can't do. We thought that we were going to get freedom by trying to be God to ourselves, but instead we find ourselves caught up and tangled in every other wicked thing. We find addiction comes to us very easily. We find unhealthy behaviors come to us very easily. We ensnare ourselves very easily. And sometimes our sense of powerlessness turns to anger that we double down and we go, you know what, I'm going to try even harder to be God in my own life. I will take control. I will make this world do what I want it to do. I will make these other people do what I want them to do. And this is not new. Human beings have been trying to claw their way through this fog for for centuries, for millennia, trying to re-establish a picture of how they can have control even over death, refusing to admit that actually this is not our story, this is not all about us. People still have spiritual experiences. People still know there's something else going on, there's something out there. But we have to establish truth or meaning for ourselves. We go looking for our own wisdom. We dream of a different world. We want a world with heroes in it. 
heroes that have pure hearts, heroes that never lose. We take these ideas, these longings in our heart, and we elevate people to the status of being a hero. People get worshipped instead of God. We make demigods of people. We celebrate human triumph rather than celebrating the creator. And because we so long for a different world, because we so long for meaning or purpose or validation, because deep inside of our hearts there's this fear chewing away, we are so easily manipulated. We are so easily manipulated. And this inner brokenness of humanity is open for exploitation. And it is so often exploited. Our inner brokenness breaks out in our behavior and it becomes something, something with disastrous results. This is the human condition. But this is not our story. There is a bigger story going on. When God broke everything, he made a promise. And this promise was that a rescuer would come. That being broken is not the end of the story. There's one who will come and the serpent will strike his heel and he will crush the serpent's head. God made a promise. One who would come who would put the snake in their rightful place. One who would come who would fix the problem of humanity having rejected God. One who could fix an eternal problem. One who had eternal power and yet could do it from the human side of the equation. Someone needed to come that was completely God and completely human. And we find in the scriptures these whispers again and again and again, these stories get told. These models show up all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout these interactions that God has with humanity where he is reintroducing himself. A father will sacrifice a son. Something will happen which will be unique and, and more than, than anything in, in the created world is possible to be. When God intervenes, the laws of physics don't apply anymore. Power comes down from heaven, all-consuming power. And yet God is going to meet with people in, in a space that's not necessarily a royal space. God can meet with people in the desert. God sets up these Systems of sacrifices to show that God is not like anything else. God is different. God is holy. God is separate. He reintroduces himself again and again and again. And we see this picture starting to form a sacrifice. There's going to be a sacrifice where one life is exchanged for another. We see this through the prophets. There is going to be a suffering servant. The virgin is going to conceive. Someone's going to come from David's line and sit on his throne. This person, it's going to be the will of the Lord to crush him. And then the most miraculous thing happens. 
the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. And something happens which is completely God and completely human and our rescuer has come. The eternal, limitless, immeasurable God of all creation has put on human flesh and is now limited and is finite and is measurable and is not safe. The creator has entered into creation. The virgin has conceived. This picture is really simple. God needed to fix the situation, but from the human side, God had to put on human flesh. And then we see that God goes walking and talking. The eternal, uncreated Son of God goes walking and talking. And when we look at him, we see what God the Father is like. We see what it's going to be like one day when God fixes everything. People aren't going to go hungry anymore. The hungry will get fed. The lame will walk. The blind will see. The dead will be raised back to life. This is what's coming. This is what has started. This is what he is here to put in place. He is the suffering servant that we hear about from Isaiah. It was the will of the father to crush him. We see the people that he had given all of this information to, that he was coming, are still human. They are still broken. As human beings, we are still selfish. We sang the words this morning, I hear my own voice call out among the scoffers. If Jesus turned up today, do we honestly think that we would have treated him differently? That humanity today is somehow wiser than humanity was two millennia ago. Jesus is still a threat to power. Humans still would rather be God themselves than be in relationship with God. And even his friends abandon him and reject him. Fear still takes hold. Self-preservation takes hold. And we see the humiliation, the utter humiliation of God We see him debased, that he is whipped, he is beaten, he is spat in. The first strike that comes upon him is where the high priest's servant strikes him across the face. It happens in the house where he was supposed to be recognized first. They take his clothing from him and they gamble it. They put this wooden crossbar on him and hang a sign around his neck saying, Hail, King of the Jews. He has a mistrial. Pilate washes his hands. Even Judas, the betrayer, comes back and says, I have condemned innocent blood. And then they take him out and they nail him to some pieces of wood and they hoist him in the air between heaven and earth. And they put him on display for all of humanity to see. His own mother is there. And then they take a sponge and they dip it in wine vinegar, which is what they did instead, instead of using toilet paper. And they put it in his face and they say, here, drink this. And this is what humanity did to the rescuer. 
And we must not be afraid to see the shame of the cross. Because when we see Jesus at the point of deepest shame, we see the glory of God. And we see the majesty of God. And we see the power of God that nothing, not even that, could break the love that God has for you. He had you in mind. We heard the song just before, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Your sin was there. And my sin was there. Our wrongdoing was there. Our brokenness was there. This is where it was. where the Lord God reached down into the muck of humanity and this is how he laid hold of us. What was it the Lord needed to change the course of history? What was it he needed to move the heavens and the earth? What was it he needed to undo the power of sin and death and judgment to maintain his love and to maintain his holiness and to put to flight all the work of the enemy? Some wood and some nails. And he undid everything. This is the God that we worship. This is the God who has died for us. This is the God who has come to save us and to rescue us. Death is not the scariest thing in the room anymore. Because we have a God who is greater than death. And this story is so simple. So very, very simple. In Luke's gospel, it tells us that as he hung there, A thief on one side of him said something incredibly simple. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is the gospel. Jesus says, today, I assure you, you will be with me in paradise. Everything is paid for. The thief did not earn it. The thief did not pay for it. It was not about how much or how little he knew. It was not about how many times he'd gone to any kind of worship gathering. It was not about however many brownie points he had in anyone else's book. He simply said to Jesus, I need you. That is the gospel. Jesus is in charge and our sin is put away. There is not a single thing we can do to earn it. And as we reflect on this story, the story, the overarching meta-narrative, the big story that covers everything. When we see the enormity of God, how can we help but worship him? How can we help but glorify him and thank him? This good news is so simple. We worship a crucified God. And in his crucifixion, we see he is more powerful than anything else in all of creation. In a moment, we're going to finish the service. I'm going to um, uh, just ask that we play a song as a chance for us to reflect on this, this picture that the gospel is simple and, and it's okay for us to just rest in the simplicity of it. It doesn't have to be complex. No part of what we've talked about this morning is that complex. It's really simple. And I encourage you. There are people in your life that need to hear this. As simple as Jesus explained it to the thief on the cross. You know what? If you give your life to Jesus, you don't have to worry anymore. 
Because no matter what happens, you will be with the Lord in paradise. Your sin has been taken away from you. Good news. Good news for everyone. I'm going to pray and then we're going to play the song. Lord Jesus, where we have taken the simplicity of this message and made it complex, please help us to undo that. Lord God, where we have ourselves lived thinking that we need to earn your love or where we see that we are living like people who are trying to earn your love. Holy Spirit, please please show us Christ. Please open that door up in our heart and show us Christ. Let this not be something that lives in our head, but in our heart. Lord God, we don't have the words to describe how how wonderful and beautiful you are. Our language could never capture the enormity of how big you are, of how beautiful you are, of your majesty, of your glory, of your power, of your grace. Lord, we are like children. We can think we understand so much, but it's not about understanding. That's not the kind of knowing that you want from us. Lord God, would you, would you draw near to us and not just give wisdom to our minds, but would you speak to our hearts? There are some of us in this room right now that need to be reminded of your love for us, of your extraordinarily huge heaven and earth moving love for us. As we go this afternoon... Um, it's my prayer that the Spirit of God would go before you um, in your conversations, the time that you're going to have with loved ones, family, friends, and you are allowed to enjoy salvation. You are allowed to enjoy that God has saved you. You are allowed to enjoy the assurance that your sin has been taken away and that you you have a room in your Father's house. Lord Jesus, be with us as we go. May your words be on our lips. May the reassurance of your spirit be in our heart. Lord Jesus, we will rejoice in the simple gospel. You have come near to us. You have saved us and our sin is taken away. Praise you, Lord Jesus. From now until you come and into eternity, praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.